Amen. If you keep your Bibles open right there, uh, this is our last week, our fourth and final week, studying through this prayer that we find of Jesus in John chapter 17. It comes at a time in his, in his life and ministry right before his arrest and his, his trial and his crucifixion. And as that hour is coming, as he says in verse 1, he stops, he pauses to pray. And that prayer is the longest recorded prayer that we have uh, from Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, he prays for, for numerous things. Even as you've heard Pastor Michael read, he prays and gives an account of his ministry. Uh, he gives, uh, uh, he offers to the Lord prayer for his followers then and his future ones, the ones that will believe, he says in, in the prayer. He prays for his glory, for our sanctification, for our unity. Um, and we'll see this morning what implications that has for us. We've been studying this a little bit differently. If, if this is your first week back with us or haven't been with us for a while or never have been at Poplar Spring, we usually study verse by verse. This time we've taken four weeks and we've looked at this entire chapter, 26 verses, for four weeks in a row and we've pulled off different layers, looking at it uh, as far as themes that are, we find in this, in this chapter. The first week, as a reminder, we saw that the, 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 what the Father has given the Son There are numerous things that Jesus prays and acknowledges that were given to him, authority that was given to him. And then the second week, we saw what the Son has given to his followers. Last week, we saw what the Son asks the Father to do. And this morning, our final week in the the study, we'll see how Christ's followers relate to the world. So how are we to interact and how are we to relate to the world around us, the world that we live in? I have four for you this morning. It's kind of a a tricky outline, so it'll be on the screens as it's been the last four weeks, but uh, four major points, four major observations that we see in the way that we relate to the world, and then each of them have some, some sub-points. And so if you're a note, note taker, you'll enjoy that this morning. So the first one, Christ's followers are not of the world. This is verse 16. Uh, he says it matter-of-factly, and we uh, often have this saying, we in the world, but not of the world. And so this is one of the places that that comes from. He says this in verse 16. They, talking about believers, are not of the world, just as I, Jesus, am not of the world. So what does this mean to not be of the world? And maybe what are some ways that we're tempted to be of the world that we should not be? I'll give you four. These are certainly not an, this is certainly not an exhaustive list. You could think of specifics. These are sort of broad categories that if, uh, if we're not careful, we can be of the world and be like the world. So first, we're not to embrace the world's wisdom when it comes to things like sexuality or views on marriage or parenting or finances or leadership principles, counseling, on and on and on. We could name numerous examples we're tempted to think or to incorporate worldly wisdom, ways that are, 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 are out there that, that we may see and want to incorporate them without even thinking, what would God have to say about this, right? We often see things and it seems to be working, right? And so pragmatism would tell us, hey, it's working for them. Maybe I can do it the same way or it looks to be effective or efficient. So maybe I will do it that way too with no regard for what God would say about those things. So we're not to embrace the world's wisdom. Second, we're hitting these pretty quick. We're not to embrace the world's theology. One of the strangest things for me growing up, a pastor's kid, a church kid, on the pew every Sunday since the time I was born, one of the strangest things for me was going to a state university and hearing some similar language, 
some terms and words that I'd heard in my home or in the church, but with completely, drastically different meaning, right? So when I say we're not to embrace the world's theology, everyone has a worldview. Everyone thinks, uh, even if they wouldn't use those categories, about metaphysics and what's out there, what's beyond life. And sometimes those words and that vocabulary overlaps, but with, but with different meaning. I had a professor that talked about the Bible but he talked about it as being full of, 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 of uh, misinformation or error or uh, inaccuracies. That, that man was basically good and, and needed no redemption. Or that the cross was violent, divine child abuse. This is a, a Bible class at a state university. Uh, that, that creation, the creation account that we read of in Genesis was a, a myth, an ancient myth, because the ancients needed some story uh, to, to make sense of things. The Bible's teachings on sexuality or purity or abstinence or gender roles were out of date and must be disregarded because they were no longer relative. Um, sin, it's not really a problem, a rebellion against a holy God. Instead, it was holding the wrong political or social views. Uh, Jesus, no longer a sin-bearing Savior. Instead, he was a good moral example, someone that you could look to for how you could live an ethical life. Salvation was not being made right with God or reconciled to God through repentance and faith. Salvation was this slow bringing about of a better culture and society by doing good to your neighbor. There's a lot of similar language that you just heard me say, but, but, but completely different meaning. And we're tempted, or we can be tempted, we must guard that we would not be tempted to have that understanding of, of God in our theology. So we're not to be of the world as it concerns our understanding of God. Third, we're not to embrace a world's, the world's agenda. What I mean there is that if we're of the world, then we'll find that our agenda as Christians and as the church is whatever the culture deems appropriate at a given time. So at a time of war, the culture around us may be screaming, we need peace, we need peace. And so the church or the Christians adopt that agenda. And that's their main agenda. That's the thing they're harping on and, and talking about every opportunity they get. It may be... Uh, energy crisis or homelessness or tax relief or world hunger, whatever's trendy at a given time can be adopted by the church as its agenda. Now, I'm not saying that all of those things are wrong. In fact, some of those things are noble things, good things that we should be concerned about and, and working in those spheres of culture. But they can't be our primary agenda. God has set forth our primary agenda in Scripture gives it to us in Matthew 28. We're called by Jesus. One of the final marching orders that he gives us as the church is to be making disciples of all nations. Now, certainly we should be doing it in those spheres and utilizing those ways uh, to, to take the gospel to the nations. But when they shift into that's the center of our view and that's the thing we're focused on and that agenda becomes what we're about, then we've missed our agenda. And so let's not be victim of letting good get in the way of, of best. Fourth thing. We're not to be of the world by embracing the world's methods, right? We're not to seek uh, political power so that we can dictate laws that would make disciples or uh, to gain converts by uh, emotional manipulation, either in a worship gathering or, or, or otherwise. Uh, we're not to grow the, the church through man-centered entertainment or consumer-driven marketing, right? Th those things may seem to work. Again, there's this pragmatic thing like, well, it looks like it's working over here, that's not what we've been called to. We're called to God's methods for bringing salvation through faith in Christ to a lost world and for building up Christ's church. And those methods are primarily prayer and the proclamation of the word. And when we're about those methods, he will provide the fruit, the results. 
So those are just four. Those are just four sort of broad brush strokes, uh, umbrella type uh, categories where we're not to be of the world. And so we should take heed this morning to not be of the world. And then here's the thing, considering those four ways and even just those four broad examples, we can name specifics and others. But if we're, if we're not of the world and, and in even those four ways, then we should expect number two, point number two, our second major observation in the text this morning. When Jesus prays, he identifies that Christ's followers are hated by the world. This is verse 14. Jesus says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here this morning because this is pretty straightforward. In fact, I'm sure as uh, just in hearing it read twice by Pastor Michael once and then by myself, you understand what this is saying. That if Jesus, the perfect Son of God, emphasis on perfect, he never did wrong, he was sinless. If the perfect Son of God was hated by the world, what makes you think that you, a sinner, who names the name of Christ, will not be hated by that same world? Does that make sense? I think in the, the day and age that we live in, there's a lot of, 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 of hatred and everything seems to be polemical and everything's an argument. Everyone's looking to win people to their side of the argument. Jesus said this 2,000 years ago. We're going to be hated by the world. If you're living for Christ, you're going to be hated by the world. It's not the first time that Jesus taught like this. In John chapter 15, he says this to his disciples. He's teaching his disciples. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of this world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, then they would keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus says here, expect what happened to me. To happen to you. Now, that doesn't mean crucifixion. I don't expect that any of you will be crucified this week. But the same sort of response, the hatred, being maligned, being misunderstood, being misrepresented, being mocked, will happen to you if you name the name of Christ. So I think the, the question for us to ask as we wrestle with application and how do we live out a text like this, how does it really hit us right square in the chest, is to ask yourself, has it ever happened? For, for you, have you ever been hated or have you ever suffered? Have you ever been maligned, ever been mocked for the name of Christ? Now, I'm not saying, have you ever been mocked because you were a jerk and you deserved it, right? Like, that's a different question. Sometimes you're, you're mocked or maligned or mistreated because you, you deserve it. You did something. You were meddling in someone else's business or you were instigating a fight over college football, right? I'm talking about for the name of Christ. Have you experienced suffering in your life, whether it's mockery, words, or even physical, for your faith in Christ. If Jesus promises that that's going to be a reality for us, if we're going to be hated by the world, and you've not experienced that, then the next question would be, why not? It could be, it could be that no one knows you're a Christian because you've not lived your faith out and spoken your faith out in front of them. We need to wrestle with that, church. We need to wrestle with that because as we come to our third observation, we'll see why. First two, though, is this. Just as a reminder, Christ says we're not of the world, and secondly, he says, we'll be hated by the world. That leads to our third observation. Christ's followers are sent into the world. This is verse 18. Well, it's actually numerous places in the prayer, but we'll look at verse 18 first. He says, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So our union with Christ, so this is what Jesus is saying, our relationship with him 
As a result of having that relationship, we also take on, we don't only take his name, we take his name, but we also take on his mission. And if he was sent by the Father, which the connection here in his prayer is that he was, then we too are sent by Christ. Implication, we are. All right? So listen, just as Jesus, I think this is, this is, this is where we would often disconnect, right? So just as Jesus has secured our place by him in heaven when, when he returns, he also calls us to take his place as witnesses on earth until he returns. We see this in three ways in the text. In verse 18 makes three, it's a short verse, right? It's a, it's a pretty short, short verse, but it makes three vital points about this mission that Christ has left for us here on earth. I'll make these real quick. Number one is this. Christ himself has sent us. That's what he tells us in verse 18. That if Christ has sent us, it means that we live in this world for Christ's work, for his kingdom. Don't just glance over that because it's sort of an obvious thought, like we've heard this in church numerous times. Don't miss this meaning and don't miss the weight of this. Is there anything, church, that can compare with the assignment and the task that our king has left us with? Uh, David Livingstone was a, a missionary to, to Africa. He said this, and I love this quote. Maybe you've heard it before. It, it's one worth writing down. He says this, If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? In other words, you, you would feel so honored if a king or queen or monarch came before you and said, I've got a job just for you. It's for you, Matt James. I need you to go do fill in the blank. That would be an honor, right? Singled out by a king to, to have this mission on his behalf. How in the world can we look at the commands we're given in Scripture and even this prayer here by Jesus where it says that we're sent into the world and go, mm, I don't know, that's, that's a sacrifice there. That I, don't, I don't know if I'm willing to, to step up to bat for. And maybe we wouldn't say that, but by the way we live, that's sort of what it looks like. This prayer from Jesus is originally intended for his disciples, the, the 12 in particular that would go and, and as apostles go and, and be sent with the gospel, right? And there's some differences between their role as apostles and our role in the church today. And, and they were unique in church history in, in several ways. But the general truth applies. What he's saying here, the, we teach the same truth, right? Their hands recorded the New Testament. Our lips proclaim it. Uh, we're empowered by the same Holy Spirit to accomplish the same mission. We're still about that mission. We carry on their work of mercy, right? As they went and met needs, physical needs, we carry on works of mercy so that we can meet the greatest need, which is sin and, and separation from a holy God. And we're aided through the power of prayer in the same way that they were. As we see in the book of Acts, the, the, the apostles were aided in, in the prayer of the, the saints. And so it's very few things in that sense have changed. The context, the gifts look different now than they did then, but we're still sent by Christ in the same way. Sent by Christ himself. That's what he makes clear to us in verse 18. Second thing we note in verse 18 is that we're sent into the world. Now bear with me because this next statement's a mouthful, but think about what this means. This shows us that while Jesus prayed to the Father to protect us in the world, that's verse 11, and John later writes that we're not to love the things of the world or be like the world. That's 1 John chapter 2. Our mission to this world shows us that the gospel is not calling us to an absolute separation from the world. Does that make sense? Like, like our mission to the world that Jesus is praying for in John 17 means that we can't be separated to, drawn out from, isolated from the world and the people around us. 
If Jesus didn't care for the world, then he would have just removed us, right? Like, think about that. Like, if if Jesus didn't have a a plan for us to be in the world, sent by him with the gospel, then the moment you're saved, it would have just been like immediate rapture, right? Like, you trust Christ, you ask for the forgiveness of sins, you repent, you turn to Christ in faith, and then boom, you're immediately in his presence. That would be pretty cool, but that's not what happened. In fact, look at verse 20. Jesus says, I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. So the apostles are sent with the gospel, with the word of Christ, and we here in Franklin County, North Carolina, are recipients of it. So Jesus is praying here for us and for those that we will take that word to. So we're left here because there are those out there who haven't believed. There are future sheep who have not been yet brought into the fold. And for that reason, Christians remain in the world, sent into the world. So what Jesus is praying in verse 11. If you look at what verse 11 with me, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's there at the right hand of the Father. We are here carrying out the mission he's left for us. And then again in verse 15, he says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I don't want you to remove them from the world. I want them to be in the world, but as they're in the world, protect them from evil, protect them from sin and Satan. Now, I realize that as we get practical here and as we begin to apply this and think through what this means for my family and for our lives, this has challenges, right? Like especially in the world that we live in, in the times and the day and age that we live in, because of the increasing hostility of the world towards sinners, our believers, because of the increasing hostility that we experience, which Jesus has already prayed for, right? Shouldn't be a surprise to us. Because of the increasing sinfulness of our culture and the corrupting influence of worldliness, we're going to have this temptation to separate ourselves from the world, right? Like this is that dual temptation. We've talked about this before, especially in the book of Esther, right? Like on the one hand, we have this temptation to, to, to assimilate with culture and to look just like the world, right? To be as the world is. And so there's this temptation on this hand. And on the other hand, there's this temptation to isolate from the world. Because of sin, I don't want anything to do with the world. And so I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to be uh, on a, in a monastery somewhere, whether we would literally be or not. That's how we sort of pattern our lives. And we have to avoid isolation from the world. Because if we, if we end up in isolation, we, we physically cannot be obedient to this command and this prayer from Jesus in John 17 because we're never in the world to have an impact on it. Right? One scholar says this. It's sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it, it's, there's a lot of truth here. He says it's possible today to be born of Christian parents, to grow up in a Christian family, to have Christian friends, to go to Christian schools, and then go to a Christian university, to read Christian books, to, a, to a, uh, attend a Christian country club, also known as a church, to watch Christian movies, to get Christian employment, to be attended by a Christian doctor, and then finally one day, I suppose, to die and be buried by a Christian undertaker on holy ground. And all of this might seem desirable to some, except for the fact that Jesus prays that it wouldn't be the case. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. In other words, if isolation from the world is desirable to you, and that's what you strive for, is to in every way to protect and to put a fence around you and your family from the world, that, 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 that you're living in opposition to this command from Jesus. That the thing that he's praying for in John 17 is that you would be in the world. And you're patterning your life so that you wouldn't be in this world. That's, that's opposition to Jesus. And I think, church, we need to be honest with ourselves for a second and evaluate how we're doing here. Not just like, like personally, yes, personally, but even as a church. Like how are we corporately, as the body of Christ, how are we doing here? I know it's strange at, at this time in, in the life of our church with everything that's going on around us, with the, the sickness and the virus and the, those sort of things, but how are we doing as, as far as this command and this prayer of Jesus? 
Are we having an impact on this world? Are we in the world enough to have an impact on it? Back when we had a Awana, y'all remember that, that thing? <laughs> Back in the good old days when we had that, that program up for discipleship and memorize scripture with our kids and they learned the scriptures and the, and the, and the, and the study of the Bible together. Uh, one of the challenges that they had in their workbook in, in Awana was, was to share the gospel with an unbeliever or to, to invite someone that was unchurched to church, to Awana or a worship gathering. And uh, I can't tell you how many parents, not kids, but parents came to, to me or Michael or back when Stephen and Steve were here to them and, and said, my kid can't, can't complete this challenge. I'm like, well, why not? Because we don't, we don't know anyone that doesn't have a church home. You're like, man, why, why not? I, th- I think it could be an indicator to us, church, that we're not out in the world and that we don't know enough lost folks and we're not building relationships with, such, with folks such that we could share the gospel with them. We're at least not being intentional to that end in the places that we are seeking recreation and, and, and things as a family. I'm not throwing st- stones here, church family. I'm, I'm wrestling with this. I feel this as well, the weight of this. Um, in, in fact, three or four years ago, I was in a place in, in my life personally where I was taking classes at a Southern Baptist Seminary I was uh, working at the church, <laughs> I was the mancretary then, and uh, attending either worship gathering or uh, small group type discipleship things three nights a week. And I looked around and I, I didn't know a single person in North Carolina that I had a close enough relationship, that I'd built a relationship with that needed Jesus, that, that, I, had, that I had poured into their lives and become truly a friend to them, right? Like not just, not just a means to an end, but truly a friend. And so I shared this concern with Jess, and we began to pray and wrestle with how could we be more intentional in this area with all the things that we were involved in with school and with church. And so I got on Craigslist. <laughs> place you go, right? And uh, I looked for, uh, for a, a band that needed either a guitarist or a, a bass player, and I found a country music band in Youngsville, right? Like, <laughs> thinking back on it, it's so funny. Five miles from my house, there was a group of five guys, men, that were meeting once a week to play country music tunes, so that they could get good enough that they could go play and, 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 and entertain on the weekends. And they needed a bass player. It was almost like God was painting this on a billboard so I couldn't miss it. Like, here's something you already know how to do. Go and do it and share Jesus, right? And so I went. And, and for, for six to eight months, once a week, we went and we played music together. And, uh, and, and, and he gave opportunity to share Jesus and to, and to share the gospel with these folks. And no one made a profession of faith at that time. No one, no one came to know Christ. And eventually I had to bow out because I became pastor here, and it's just kind of hard to be up all night playing music on Saturday night and then preaching Sunday morning. But uh, a couple Easter's ago, I get this phone call. It's like Monday after Easter, and, uh, and it's the drummer from that band. And he goes, man, I just thought I'd call and tell you I gave my life to Christ Sunday, like Easter Sunday. My daughter invited me to go to church with her. It was Easter. I figured, why not? The pastor starts preaching, and, and he's preaching right to me. There's no one else in the room. I'm hearing the gospel like it's, like it's never been told to me, and I gave my life to Christ. And I remembered our conversations at man practice and just wanted to let you know. And, and, and so, so, so I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal, church. I'm, I'm, I'm getting this wrong as much as I'm getting it right or more. But what I'm saying is we have to consider, are we being faithful to this? Are we being in the world, not, not just for our own recreation and entertainment, are we being in the world intentionally so that we can have an impact on it for Christ? He sent us into the world for that purpose. We must, must be faithful. The quote from earlier that I read to you uh, about the Christian job and Christian school and Christian family, that quote continues, and, he, and I think the, the language is really fitting considering our, our current cultural context. He says this, We should know non-Christians 
We should befriend them, like genuinely, not just as a project. And we should enter into their lives in such a way that we begin to infect them with the gospel rather than they're infecting us with worldliness. And so ask yourself, are there people like that in your life? They don't know Christ yet, but you're sharing him with them. And you're praying that they would come to know Christ. So verse 18 shows us that we're to be sent into the world. And that means, first of all, that Christ himself has sent us. It means, secondly, that we're sent into the world. We're to be in the world, not isolated from it. And then third, here's the last part of what verse 18 means here. We're sent into the world by Christ in the same way that Christ was sent into the world by the Father. You see that in in, uh, in the verse as well. And you may ask, well, what does that mean? Well, I think when we consider what it meant for Jesus to be sent into the world, then we can glean some insight into what it means for us to be sent into the world. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying when he says, as you sent me, Father, so, or like that, or just as, so I have sent them. Real quick, that means four things. We're going to hit these pretty quick. It means first that Jesus came into the world in subjection to the Father's will. You see this in verse 4. We didn't particularly read verse 4 um, this morning, except for when Pastor Michael did, but this is what it said. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So though Jesus is co-equal with the Father, he subordinated himself for our salvation. In his taking on human flesh, he subordinated himself to the will of the Father. Charles Spurgeon said this in the late 1800s. He said, so long as he remained under his commission, he didn't speak his own words, nor do his own deeds, but he listened to the Father's will. And what the Father said to him, he both did and spoke. And that's exactly where you and I have to place ourselves now. Our Lord sends us, and we are to be in the very deed, subordinate to his command in all things. We are no longer masters. We've become servants. Our will is lost in the glorious will of our superior. That's the first. As Jesus Subordinate to the Father's will, so are we subordinate to the will of Christ. Second, again, we're looking at the questions on the, on, the, on, the, on the screen for us. What does it mean to be sent into the world in the same way that Jesus was sent into the world? Well, Jesus was called to labor and not to luxury. Right? You think through the Gospels, read through the Gospels, and what you see of Jesus in his earthly days of, of ministry on this earth is he, he's constantly wearied. He's constantly exhausted and burdened and, and thirsty and oppressed. And then finally, crucified. And you, you, you look at that picture, and we're, his Christ, and we're, we're Christ's followers, and our lives should look like his life. The, the world's going to hate us as it hated him. And we ask, Does it, do any of those things characterize me? Having been sent into the world, we're not to stake our claim for, for comfort and for ease. Instead, for costly usefulness to Jesus and his gospel. So we, we, we gladly, right, maybe hurts, but we gladly embrace inconvenience for the sake of another soul, Right? Third, third way in which this is the same, like this, our sending mirrors his sending, is that Jesus' task required him to defer the timing of his glory. It's like Jesus, we see in Hebrews, laid down the glories of heaven in order to purchase our redemption. And so, yes, we, we long for Christ to come and restore all things, to be where he is. Like, church, I've prayed a lot recently. Like, come, Lord Jesus. Like, you look around and you just say, it would just be so much better. Come, Lord Jesus. But couldn't we wait? Couldn't we wait if it means that we, we finish the work that he's given us to do, that we toil and labor for his glory because his glory is, is worth it. His majesty, his renown is worth us laboring. Charles Spurgeon again, quoting Spurgeon here, he's, he's really nailing it in this chapter. He says this, we must not sigh for heaven while there's so much to be done here on earth. The rest of glory will come, but right now, 
We have the work to do, the work of our mission. I think this is for us, church. Like when we get weary of, of everything going on in the world around us, being persecuted for the name of Christ, and I'm using the word persecuted, and I don't think we've seen persecution. Like we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are persecuted in other parts of the world. I mean, I think we, we may get called a name or something every now and then, inconvenienced at best for the name of Christ. But even if it were to come to persecution, we say, come Lord Jesus, but as long as you don't, I'm going to continue to labor for your, for your fame and for your glory until you come, and it's worth it. Fourth thing here, Jesus endured shame and disgrace. We've already mentioned this morning, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but Jesus endured shame and disgrace. We can expect the same, to be misunderstood, to be misrepresented, mocked, ridiculed, so on and so forth. His sending, our sending, they should look similar in that sense. And number five, fifth one, Jesus was sent with grace to reconcile sinners to God. Now, I want to be clear here. This does not mean that the power of, uh, of the salvation of the lost is in our hands. We can't save people. We don't have that, that power, that ability. God does that work. I'm not trying to make that connection. But just as Jesus came with grace, so we should go with the announcement of that grace. As he was sent, so are we. A.W. Pink says this, Christ was sent here on an errand of mercy. I love that, that language, errand of mercy. To seek and to save that which was lost. So we are here as his agents, his instruments to preach his gospel, to tell the world dead in sin of the one who is mighty to save. Christ was here full of grace and truth, and so should we be as well. So there's number three. That's the end of, of, of our third thought there being sent to the world. Number four, our fourth observation, fourth major point, and our final one this morning in the text, Christ's followers' unity with each other and union with God will lead those of the world to believe the gospel. So there's two things. There's two statements right there. There's two observations, and we see it in verse 21, that, that unity with each other, which we've, we've mentioned three weeks in a row now, and union with Christ, union with God, will lead those of the world to believe the gospel. Look at verse 21. Jesus prays that they, believers, that's us, followers of Christ, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so take it, this is, this is where everything we talked about this morning comes into one thought, comes together, and, and, and if you like things to be wrapped up neatly and tightly with a bow on it and sealed, this is where it happens. So even though we are to be in the world but not of the world, and even though the world will hate us as a result, we are to be peculiar. There's something that, that is to be peculiar about us, different about us, that would lead the world to believe the very thing that's causing the world to hate us, namely the gospel, Right? Do you see that in the, in, the, in the text? That We're to be in the world, but not of the world. The world's going to hate us. But there should be something peculiar about us, different about us, compelling about us that would lead the world to believe the very thing that they're hating, the gospel. In fact, the peculiar thing about us, the thing that's different about us, are actually two things, and they're given, us to, given to us in verse 21, that they, believers, may all be one. So God-given unity among Christians. And that they, believers, may also be in us. So Christ-given union, right? So there's God-given unity with other believers, and there's Christ-given unity with God, or union with God. Now, last week and the, the weeks before, three weeks in a row, we've mentioned this, the unity aspect of this. We've looked at the local church unity that should exist in us as believers, as a, as a covenanted community together here at Poplar Spring. We've looked at the, the unity that should exist globally among Christians of, of all time and places. 
Um, and so we've applied the text in those two ways. I want us to look at the second part of this, though, uh, because it's the first time that it's come up for us, where Jesus adds this, this statement that, that they may be in us, right? What does that mean? What's Jesus intending there? I think maybe because of where it's at in John's gospel, John 17, he's alluding back to something he said earlier in John chapter 15 with this uh, metaphor of the vine and the branches. You know the, the text I'm talking about. We'll, we'll read it. Listen as I read John chapter 15 and, and specifically listen for inclusion language that Jesus will say in them or in me or in uh, you, those sort of words. So listen as I read, starting John chapter 15, verse 1. I think this is what Jesus is referring back to. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Did you hear that? At least 13 times in John 15, those, few, those 11 verses, 13 times Jesus is talking about being in him or in you or in the Father now listen to verse 21 again from chapter 17, the prayer of Jesus that we've been studying. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may, be, may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's my point. Here's why I would take us to John 15. It should be observable that you are in Christ abiding in him. The, the, the fruitfulness of your life, the priorities of your life are inseparable from the life itself. And that flows from your union with Christ such that you can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. Like my life is Christ. Like, can I say that? Can, can I say Matt James's life would not be Matt James's life if you removed union from Christ from it? Right? Does that make sense? Like, like, like if you see Matt James around, if you're around him any amount of time, it should be clear that he's in Christ because his, his union with Christ makes that necessary. He's inseparable, that inseparable union. So as a result, if you see his Facebook or his Twitter account, it should be obvious that he's in Christ. If you see him interact with his wife and kids, it should be obvious that he's in Christ. His life, though not perfect, it should reflect obedience to Christ because his life is inseparable from Christ, right? That union, it causes obedience such that it's observable. And here's where both of these things end, right? This is the end of both of these things. That unity with Christians and union with Christ would be something that the world sees, notes, and is drawn to Christ by. <laughs> so in other words, as we display genuine love and concern and care for one another 
And as we live lives wholly devoted to Christ, our supreme priority, those traits should be so compelling, so unworldly, that they scream to a lost world, the gospel is true. Jesus is who he said he was. He was sent by the Father to die on a cross for our sins. Like our lives and our union with one another should, should say that to a lost world. Here's what John MacArthur says on, on, this, on this part of the text. He says, the loving unity of the church made visible is used by God to produce a desire on the part of unbelievers to experience that same love. On the other hand, where there are carnal divisions and strife and backbiting and quarreling in the church, it drives unbelievers away. Why would they want to be a part of such a hypocritical group? The effectiveness of the church's evangelism is devastated by dissension and disputes among its members. So church family, are we living? Like as we take, as we take inventory and look at our lives, on a, on a personal level, does my union with Christ produce obedience such that people go, wow, something's different. I want to I I have what he has, right? And then corporately as the body of Christ, are we living in such a way, caring for one another in such a way that the world will go, I want love like that. I've never experienced love like that. Like my own family, biological family, they don't treat each other the way that I see this church family treating each other. I pray that's true. That's, that's what Jesus is praying for. That's the evangelism plan. That's the strategy that Jesus lays out for us in this prayer before the Father. That both of these things would be a compelling witness to a lost world. And so we have to take, it, we have to take account and, and think back even through the text that we've looked at this morning. Does me being in the world and looking like the world, does that strike people clearly and, 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 and first, or does my otherworldliness, the fact that Christ is living in me and I'm connected to the vine, which is going to produce fruit that looks unlike this world, is that the first thing that they see and notice? I think we have to wrestle with that, church. And then one of the gifts that we have that God has given us, right, to visualize this, right, just to see it, right? Because he knew we would need that. That's, that's his grace to us. That, that it's not just a thought. It's not just philosophy. It's not just something you hear, words you hear. But he's given us something to visualize that, to express this idea, and to enjoy this unity that we have as, as followers of Christ is communion. He's given us that gift for this purpose, that he would supernaturally knit us together. So that's the thing that I think we often get confused about communion. We think it's just something we're doing, right? It's, it's something we're, an action we're taking part in, Right? As, as worship. So worship's happening. I'm worshiping the Lord through this physical thing. But so often we leave out the, the, the spiritual aspect that God is actually doing something. He's working. As we do this, he's also doing something to knit us together, to give us supernatural unity and closeness as a family that would be attractive to a lost world. And so in a minute, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give us instructions to move to the, to the front porch, to the front yard, out there on the concrete where the steps are. And, and we're going to observe communion for the first time together in four months. Um, but before we do, I want to take some time and give us some instruction in here because it's hot out there. right? So, so, so bear with me. And, and I'm going to take a little bit longer time for us to, to prepare our hearts this morning. So if you're in the fellowship hall or even in your vehicle right now listening, I want you to think about this. We've, we've done this before, but I want you to think about four glances or four looks that you should take this morning before we move into a time of communion together. First is this, an, an inward look. Right? So, so when I say an inward look, you should examine your own heart and life and ask the Lord to reveal any unconfessed sin that you may have, any strife that you may have with a brother or sister that you've not reconciled with, 
And you should repent and be forgiven before you come to this, this table. Like 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven 27 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. If there's anything I don't want to be guilty of, it's, it's that. All right? And, uh, and so let us not be guilty of that today. That's, that means a couple things. That means first, if you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, like even today the Lord may be working in your heart and, and the gospel may be, be clear to you, but you've not come to the Lord through faith and repentance, we'd ask you just to sit this one out, right? This is a celebration of what the Lord's done in our hearts as he's drawn us to salvation. And, uh, and so we'd ask you to observe and to, to contemplate what the Lord's done on your behalf in dying for your sins on the cross so that next time when we do it, you are a part of the family, and you're doing it with us. The second thing is this. If you are a Christian, but you're not a member of Poplar Spring, you've given your, your, your heart and life to the Lord, you've repented of your sins, and you're a member of a church that, that's of like faith and practice, we invite you to take, partake with us today. Uh, the table is open to you. So that's the inward look. Examine your own heart. Ask the Lord to search your heart. The second is this, a backward look. <laughs> in, in same text, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So by us doing this today, we're proclaiming, we're announcing the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the, the, the gospel. The preeminent purpose for us doing this, for, uh, to, for celebrating communion, is to, to celebrate visually what God has done on the cross in his own son. And so as we do that today, uh, we're looking backwards. We're looking, and, and here's, the, here's the incredible thing, the aspect of communion. This is where God's doing this, 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 this supernatural work of, of union and unity in us as believers. That as we do this, he's saying, here are brothers and sisters. Here's a, a covenant family that believe the same truth. So that thing you're looking back on and saying you believe, they all believe it too. That's an incredible thing. So we look backwards. And then number three, it's an outward look. <laughs> so as we, we take a communion today, I want you to look. It's going to be different because we're on the front porch and it's going to be sunshine and hot. I understand that. But it's going to be incredible because there's going to be no, no barrier between us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't have pews to separate us. We don't have walls to separate us. We're going to be gathered together. And as we are, you're going to be more free than ever to look around you and see men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, that have confessed this same truth. And so take an outward look. Take an inward look. Take a backward look. Take an outward look and see your brothers and sisters in Christ that are, that are being knit together this morning with you. And then finally, a forward look. The text in 1 Corinthians 11 continues, For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. And so there's a forward look that's necessarily a part of this. That we do this remembering his death, but hoping in and looking for, expecting his return. That there will be a day when he'll return and restore and make all things right, gather his people to himself, and there'll be no more hurt, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more, no more hate. I mean, this was in the text, right? Like, we're hated by this world because of this profession. And one day that'll come to an end. And we'll be surrounded in glory by our king at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we look forward, waiting for that day. So there are four glances I want you to take as we, as we prepare our hearts for communion. What I'd like to do is, uh, is, is instruct us to, to, to stand, and we'll have our benediction after communion on the front, front porch. But if you would, make your way through, through those doors towards Highway 39. If you're in the fellowship hall, same thing, front doors towards Highway 39. Uh, the, the bread and the, the cup have been set up for you as you exit. They're together, so don't look, for, don't look for the bread. It's with the cup, and you'll see it. It's all in one little packaged thing. And so you grab that, and you can space out as, as well as you'd like on the front lawn. If you're in your car this morning, uh, there are tables set up um, outside that you can get to as well, whether you're coming from the fellowship hall, the parking lot, or this building.
building. And so you guys grab those elements, and uh, I'll come back and, and lead us to partake together. So you grab those elements, but wait on my instruction. We'll, we'll take it together as a church family. All right.